0: The Reminiscing in Time podcast is brought to you by the Indiana University Jacob School of Music Centennial Committee and Office of Communications. Join the celebration online at music.indiana.edu. I'm John Christopher Porter, and this is Reminiscing in Time from the IU Jacobs School of Music. In this episode of the pod, Lessons Learned, I'm joined by Jacobs Music Education faculty, past and present, for a casual, yet at times erudite, conversation about their unique areas of expertise and the various developments in their department through the years. Let's meet our guests.
1: Current chair of the music education department, Professor of Music Brent Galt. My areas of interest are elementary general music, early childhood music, and I also have some training in Kodai, Dalkros, and Orff approaches to teaching music to children. Uh, at IU, I teach the elementary general music course. I teach that every semester. Uh, in addition, I teach both undergraduate and graduate courses in early music and early childhood, in the children's chorus, and then also under an undergraduate course in Kodai Orff-Dalcroze, three graduate courses in uh, Kodai-based methodology. In addition, I am the current steward of the IU Children's Choir. I'm the program director, and my goal is just to sustain this amazing program that Mary Getzee, uh founded. And it's an honor to to have the opportunity to follow in her footsteps and keep this wonderful program moving. As far as creative activity, I am currently working on a co-edited book with a colleague of mine, Carlos Abril, from the University of Miami called General Music, Dimensions of Practice. Uh, We've just received the copy edits from Oxford. And our hope is that that will be published in February of 2022. In recent years, another area of interest to me has been music listening and how we actively engage children in music listening and the listening experience. And I was able and fortunate enough to uh, publish a book called Listen Up and do some workshops related to active music listening. That's something I'm, I'm currently asked to do quite a bit of and enjoy a great deal.
2: I am an instrumental music education professor.
1: Professor
0: of Music and Associate Dean for Instruction, Lissa May.
2: My areas and specialty are um, jazz and instrumental music student teaching. Now I'm teaching a historical research course, which is really exciting. Um, Most of my time actually currently goes to my position as Associate Dean for Instruction, but I still am active as a guest conductor and clinician and adjudicator for bands and jazz bands. Uh, My current research interest, which I've begun kind of doing a lit review, is on health and wellness in music schools so that's um, hopefully a
3: project that'll get moving along. I'm also an instrumental music education specialist.
0: Professor of music Peter Mixa.
3: I teach courses mostly at this point at the graduate level regarding uh, psychology of music, learning theories, measurement and evaluation, research methods, and do a, a bunch of research advising, but I've also taught um, everything from intro to music education. to supervising student teachers and teaching methods courses. I uh, coordinate the Young Winds program and am the advisor for the CNAFME student chapter uh, right now, too. My current projects at the moment, I've got a a few, all of them revolve around psychological principles of music teaching and learning in some ways. Working on a a cognitive psychological study on temporal perception, trying to figure out the cognitive mechanisms that help percussionists perceive time uh, more accurately or robustly than other musicians. Working with uh, our very own wonderful Dr. Brenda Brenner on a project looking at and how students self-regulated practice might change over time. And I've done a series of projects with some colleagues uh, beyond IU dealing with um, music teacher well-being throughout the pandemic. In about a month, we'll submit uh, all of our chapters for a research methods textbook that I've uh, collaborated with Lauren Rescherm and Julia Shaw, and, as well as from outside of IU, Philip Hash and Donald Hodges. And
0: we're really excited about that book.
4: My specialty is for my lifetime of work Focused on scholarship.
0: Professor Emerita of Music, Estelle Jorgensen.
4: And in particular, uh, the philosophy of music education. I've also taught foundations courses at Indiana University curriculum and college music teaching, which I immensely enjoyed. Now I've um, supposedly, in what I would call unretirement, um, I'm busier now than I think I've ever been. Um, My focus is right now on uh, writing a new book which will follow values of music education and effectively argue with it. And uh, it's it's a book in which I'm seeking to redeem some music educational sins. That's been a lot of fun to write.
0: Associate Professor of Music and Interim Executive Associate Dean, Brenda Brenner.
5: I mostly teach uh, applied violin to our music education majors at every level, and um, along with Frank Diaz, really head up the, the string area of our department. Um, in 2008, I started the Fairview Violin Project at a local public school, and so that, that's um, still cooking, it's, it's going strong, um, so I have a, a huge number of students that I employ over there to um, get their feet wet with um, teaching experience and providing a large group violin instruction for um, a local public school. I also at IU um, am the faculty advisor for the IU ASTA chapter, the American String Teachers Association. Right now I'm, as Pete said, involved in a, a practice study, which has been really, really fascinating uh, with some students of, of mine. So we're, we're at the end stage of that. Um, we've turned in, uh, with two of my former doctoral students, a content analysis of string research um, over a period of 25 years. Um, So that's an article that we've been working on for for some time now. I have another article in um, the um, data analysis stage about the impact of the experience of the IU students working at the Fairview project on their career trajectory. Um, because I think that's that's an important part and an, and a kind of unexpected part of, of what this program has been about. And then I have another article that's out based on transitional teaching, this idea of changing teachers and its effect on students, like what what sorts of psychological impact is, does that have? Right now I am the executive associate dean interim for the Jacobs School. It's a post I I took mid-pandemic in July of 2020. So um, that's kept me uh, pretty busy just um, trying to deal with COVID and manage things here at the school along with Lisa and Jeremy Allen.
6: I have a lot of chapters within music education.
0: Professor Emerita of Music, Mary Getzey.
6: I started teaching non-majors at at first, then I started the children's choir, and moved into teaching, preparing for elementary methods, and um, then after a while, I turned my interest to musics from outside the Western art tradition, and and led the uh, International Vocal Ensemble as the last part of that. Uh, my days at IU. Since I've retired, I've moved more into criminal justice, working with uh, inmates in our local jail. And that led to uh, concern for the children of incarcerated parents. And so I started a program locally called Kids with Absent Parents about four years ago. And that is consuming part of my time these days, as I'm coping with all of the things we're coping with during COVID. Um, We meet regularly with families, caregivers and children. It includes music and I'm not actually working with the children's, I'd facilitate the caregiver group.
0: Along with the founding of the IU School of Music in 1921 came the establishment of several new academic programs, including one in music teacher training called public school music, which would eventually come to be known as music education. Gertrude V. Shop, the school's first graduate, earned a bachelor's degree in public school music in 1923. In this segment, our guests discuss the history, strides, and future of music education at Jacobs. Here's Lissa May.
2: I would refer you and anyone else to an article that was published in the Journal of Historical Research and Music Education, um, authored by Patrice Madura just previous to her death in 2020, and it's called True 2 Your School, A Hundred-Year Legacy of Music Education Faculty at Indiana University School of Music. And it's a great um, chronicle of everyone who was here and the faculty and some of the accomplishments of those people. In 1921, which corresponds with the 100 years Um, anniversary of the school. Edward Bailey Burge was made the head and professor of the public school music department, which was the the very beginning of um, what is now our music education department. Throughout the last hundred years, there have been many luminaries on the faculty. I think the interesting things, um, to summarize that a bit, is that the average number of years that faculty have spent here were 21. Um, many of the people that were on the faculty had background in public school music supervision, and certainly um, many, many leaders in the field who, in many ways, as scholars, um, the publication record of the uh, music education faculty over the hundred years is pretty uh, amazing, actually, and um, performance is a portion of many people's background, and that's something that is maybe not that typical. But that continued engagement in music was really important. And uh, leadership at the state, regional, national level. Bob Klotman was the president of the MENC, and he was also president of ASTA. And, of course, Brenda Brenner just is completing a presidency of, of ASTA. Certainly, Gene Sinor who was a national figure, international figure in Kodai, president of that organization, and Brent Galt continued in that. Pathway. So there have been many ebbs and flows, I think, is an important thing to think about. You know, the department has been really strong. I was a student here beginning in 1969, and it was one of the really strong periods of the School of Music as I came in as an undergraduate. Um, faculty in, in nearly every area. I remember fondly Miriam Galvin, Charles Hoffer, Bob Klotman. Um, I knew no along for arranging, um, which was a part of the really early of course, in the very end of his 40 years here. Um, and Leon Fosha, it was an amazing department at that point in time. And then, of course, as I said, ebb and Flo, things were strong into the 70s. There was a lot of change in the way we approached graduate degrees and the offering of graduate degrees. That grew by leaps and bounds during that period of time. Things moved along over the years, and some of those folks retired and were replaced, of course. When I came back to do my doctorate, the faculty included Gene Signor, Mary Getzey, Charles Schmidt, Estelle Jorgensen. Again, a very strong faculty. Michael Schwartzkopf had a co-appointment in choral conducting and music education. Department was, was robust. So, I came, I think, at a, a particularly low point. Gene Signor had died in the spring of. 1999. And the interim person who was doing instrumental music education actually died a month following Jean's death. And so when I came into the department in the fall of 1999, I was hired and it was Chuck and Estelle and a retire- soon to retire Michael Gordon and me. And so that was a very interesting time for me coming from just finishing a doctorate and into the department with the stellar luminaries uh chuck and estelle certainly and michael gordon so um, that was a quite an introduction into my um, tenure here at the dick school music in the music education department
0: brenda brenner
5: for some perspective i came uh, to iu in 1993 as the co-director of the iu string academy the pre-college uh, program, and then I I worked in various roles until 2006 when I um, took the position as string specialist in the music education department. So, you know, I, I was around when um, Jean Sinara was there. I remember so distinctly taking my oldest child, who's now 25, when she was a baby, um, over to Jean's um, office and Jean playing with her with puppets and um, just what a, a lovely uh, person she was and how you know I, I think that was my first impression of the the music education department coming into to the department um, in 2006 from a personal perspective I, I felt that you know just the fact that that I was hired said a lot about the, the department, um, because I, I came from a performance background uh, with an, an ed degree as a BME, but um, that that I felt that they were really forward thinking in, in trying to connect the performance areas with music education. And um, I, I certainly have, have learned and benefited and continue to learn uh, from my colleagues in, in this department. Um, I think the involvement in the community, um, you know, certainly Mary Gutsy um, was really important in, in this area with the IU Children's Choir, and Brent has continued, and, and Julia Shaw, whose current faculty is, is one of the faculty in IUCC. But as I came in, looking for something that was a little bit different than the, the program that we already had at this, the university with the, the String Academy with Mimi Zweig. Um, so in 2008, uh, with the help of Lisa May, um, we we started the Fairview Violin Project, which was um, at the local school, which has the highest poverty rate. It's um, a huge number of um, children who are on free and reduced lunch. Trying to, to integrate into that community so that, so that those children had um, a, a little bit different kind of musical experience, and um, also it was a real opportunity for us to provide some pre-service teaching experience for our students, and I, I feel like in, in some ways, it's really indicative of all of, of us and our involvement in the campus, um, whether it's Connecting with other areas, I think Pete, you know, I hope you'll talk about your connection with other areas uh, in scholarship um, here on campus with the Music and Mind Lab. Certainly Frank Diaz um, with his area of interest in, in mindfulness and wellness. Um, you know, there's there are many different connections outside of just our silo here in um, music education, my connection with performance. So I, I feel like that's really, really important. Um, and you know, Fairview is, is just one small aspect of that. I feel like just the success of our students um, in thinking broadly in music education is really important as well
0: peter mixa the
3: current state and the immediate future and i would imagine the long-term future the the word is is bright the future is bright for the department for sure Um, i'm very proud of the direction the department has been taking in the past several years and of course like everyone here i'm honored to be part of a, a legacy of such a important and influential and um, meaningful uh, program here at the the Jacobs School. One thing that I'm really proud about and, and can can say for sure is that we continue to be flexible and and think about how we can change according to our students needs. We're thinking about the students in our meetings and we're drawing policies and thinking about courses and changes and updates that are necessary to help students deal with their current challenges in, in the world and, and provide them the best we can with what they need to be successful. Uh, we regularly reflect on our curricula and our coursework, for example, and how and whether that's serving our students. For example, uh, our colleague, Julia Shaw, has recently designed a course um, titled Cultural Diversity in Music Pedagogy. And that course I think will be um, an excellent addition to our curriculum for students uh, and is extremely responsive to current issues in society at the moment and is is timely and and needed and really glad that that's coming online, Uh, but we're also, I think, always thinking about our students experiences in the program holistically too so we're thinking about our policies and our benchmarks and the way that we evaluate how students are doing as uh, persons as well as academically and as developing teachers and we update those things and we talk about them really trying to put the students' concerns first. Um, for example, we think we're thinking very seriously about mentoring at the graduate, undergraduate levels and really uh, working intentionally to try to foster a collaborative and collegial community among our students, Some a place where students want to be and, and, and something they want to identify with. This is something that, that can happen naturally, of course, and has over time, but we're really trying to also be intentional about it now. And I think that's a, a good development in, in our department. Folks have mentioned it already in various ways, but an institution to a large degree is, is really the people who are contributing to the environment and the culture that exists within it. And we've been really fortunate, even since I've been here, to hire so many wonderful uh, people. Lauren kapalka uh Frank Diaz, Julia Shaw, Amanda Draper, Brian Shaw. I mean, each of these folks contributes to the scholarly vibrance of our department in, in really unique and powerful ways. They also bring um, unique and varied pedagogical strengths. So, in regards to the the nature of the department of, as a powerhouse, I mean the collective um, impact and opportunities that our faculty can provide to students is really um, relatively unmatched, I think, in in the field, and that's that's something to be really proud of and, and grateful for that there's so many wonderful people to serve as resources for students and colleagues uh, here here at IU. Some of the things that that are shaping up that may be relatively new developments um, regarding. Uh, What Brenda said, for example, we have now a uh, IU Music and Mind Lab that um, began a few years ago, uh, slowly, uh, with collaboration between myself and Daphne Tan, who was previously on the faculty in music theory. And now we have another new hire at the school who's also uh, a really brilliant fellow, Andrew Goldman, who's a cognitive um, music cognition and music theory specialist who's also working uh, teaching courses for us here in music and then for the cognitive science program in general as well. And he and I are now co-directing the Music and Mind Lab. Um, We've just been recently designated some space in terms of having rooms to conduct research Andrew himself is an EEG specialist and will have an EEG lab, and so we're formally bringing uh, hard neuroscience work to musical experience uh, this year and into the future, and that's extremely exciting. Beyond that, just in general, the collaborations that are possible and the interdisciplinary work that are possible through that mechanism are are, are very exciting. Um, So we've been working with folks, for example, in psychological and brain sciences and cognitive science and the media school and with faculty as well as students, uh, and of course, working with students throughout the School of Music, performance uh, emphasis students, as well as musicologists and music theorists. It's really, and music educators, of course, it's it's really a fascinating um, development, and, and in particular for me, given my research interest, is really, really compelling, but I think also is very compelling to a lot of students. For example, the, the lab focuses on issues of um, music cognition broadly, and so we're interested in issues of social psychology or musician health or performance development or um culture and um the kind of embodiedness of musical experience in general and that appeals to a, a lot of folks and we hope we'll be able to offer some great things for students through that in the future lauren Rasherm has been conducting a philosophy club with students and is heavily engaged in reading clubs uh with philosophers throughout the the indiana university of bloomington campus Um, Frank Diaz, of course, has uh, uh, um, innovated in our curriculum uh, in bringing in a mindfulness class and is also doing some amazing service work throughout the university on issues of student wellness and diversity. We have so many really wonderful community engagement activities happening um, that are extensions of the legacies that were established long ago, as Brent was saying, with the children's choir. Um, but all kinds of things are available for for kids in the community, and including things that are associated with our curricula, like service learning programs and opportunities that uh, are provided for our undergraduate students to teach. I would say that together with our more senior members of our faculty and our new hires, all, all is one. I think our department is is really uniquely positioned to continue to lead in the profession in really impactful and compelling ways. And it's it's just really exciting to think about the kinds of experiences that we'll be able to offer for students into the future.
0: Estelle, I was recently reminded of a quote by the late Austin Caswell uh, via Peter Burkholder, He said, if you don't know the history of your craft, then you really don't know your craft. And I'm sure that that's somewhat paraphrased. How do these words resonate with you regarding the history and foundations of music education?
4: John, I'm so glad that you mentioned Austin Caswell because uh, for those of us who knew him, he was a a bright light in the school. He was uh, a musicologist. who who went far beyond musicology to be interested in, especially in music education, he he saw history as being uh, the the great context in which the present is situated. So that if if you um, don't know this context, uh, then you're liable to make mistakes (laughs) uh, because of, of, of the lack of that knowledge. And, uh, and if, we, if we forget where we come from, we, and we forget our past, we begin reinventing the wheel. And so for Austin, this was a, a history um, of music, of music education, of everything, was um, a, a, an imperative field of study. And I would broaden his statement, because, and I think he would agree with me if we, if we were here to, to talk today, that if we do not understand not only history, but the broad theoretical foundations upon which music education is based, uh, things like philosophy, anthropology, ethnomusicology, psychology, sociology, education, and religion, among the other arts, then we are liable to have too limited a view of the interdisciplinary field of music education. um, he would agree, I think, too, that all these disciplines uh, we draw from and impact importantly on how we understand the nature of music and musical experience, the nature of education and educational experience and the ways in which music and education um, intersect. So I think that his, his view, and I think it's it's very important, illustrates one of the reasons why uh, research at music in, in music education at Indiana um, University has been much more balanced in its thrust than in um, is possible among some of our other schools especially uh, or colleague schools, especially those with smaller uh, a smaller group of faculty that we've been able to balance, our scientific understandings of music education with our qualitative, philosophical, historical, social understandings. And that breadth of view, I think, helps us to take a broader view of what is our task as music educators.
0: Thank you for your interpretation of of that, Estelle. As many of our alumni are aware Before they can get into the philosophy of music education, they of course need to know the foundations and the history of music education. Uh, Your foundations course was certainly an enlightening moment for me. But going further, in your words, what is the philosophy of music education? And is that something that's stagnant? Is that something that can change over a course of time, over one's life? And how has your philosophy of music education changed, if at all?
4: This is a very interesting question, John, and um, to, to define this or to describe it in a few words is a very daunting task. But I would say simply put that philosophy of music education is a is an applied branch of philosophy and philosophy applies to many fields. Uh, one of which is, is music education. So that's simply what the term means. However, uh, when we think about, well, what is philosophy? I suppose if you looked in a dictionary, uh, you, would, you would find something like um, a study of guiding principles, norms, behaviors, um, fundamental nature of knowledge, reality and existence. What does that mean when it comes to music education? And for me, uh, philosophy is concerned with examining the meanings of things and its objective is wisdom. It, it utilizes arguments uh, and justifications to come to belief. And I suppose in the in the ancient world we would think of philosophy as and we see this in ancient China and in the the West, in Greece, um, aphorisms or short statements that are pithy and often memorised by by the students. Um, In the West now, it uses the rules of logic um, to make arguments or propositions that are justified or defended and they're defended in a number of means: um, deduction, induction, analogy, and example. So, if we then take the step further and ask, "Well, what is edu- music education?" <laughs> if this is philosophy, what is music education? And it's it's a broad field that I have been <laughs> in process of trying to understand for the last <laughs> decades. Over the years, my understandings have both returned to reaffirm more deeply my earlier and and probably less clearly defended ideas, and also to critique my earlier understandings that have inevitably grown (laughs) much more complicated and problematic. Uh, When I finished Values of Music Education, it was interesting that for the first time I had to put in a book an epilogue which pointed forward to unanswered questions uh, that emerge out of this writing that are really important and crucial to our profession. And it's interesting, sometimes one doesn't see one's own work as well as other people see it. One of the reviewers of the book commented that I, I have an iterative philosophy. An iterative philosophy is one that seems to cycle back onto itself with increasing depth of both reading and a, a broader experience so that I come upon understandings that I have better now than when I began. I have many, many more, more questions that still remain unanswered. I wanted to mention that one of the wonderful things in this school has been the nurturing effect. and It was led by Dean Charles Webb, When I asked him if we might be able to launch a philosophy of music education review, which would be an academic journal devoted to philosophical scholarship, because this kind of thinking doesn't fit neatly in the journals developed for qualitative and quantitative research. And he went with me to the chancellor at that time, a vice chancellor at that time, Ken Gross-Lewis, and asked if we might have seed money to develop this journal. And this is now, we're going into our 30th year and uh, the journal has never been interrupted in all of that time, which has been an amazing feat in some ways. But what it has provided for our field is something that I think is crucial, which is a forum to begin to develop community, a community of philosophers of music education, all of whom have different ideas about what we should do. So we have the benefit of the pro- at, uh, in the profession now of something I think that is quite extraordinary when we think that when I came to Indiana University, there was one philosophy of music education, and now we have hundreds. That is something that has been nurtured within the school. It's been supported by successive chairs in the music education department. Uh, Jean Sinor was very supportive, especially when we were getting off the ground. It's now published uh, jointly with Indiana University Press, and they have done a wonderful job at putting the journal, transitioning from a print journal to a journal that now reaches uh, an international community online. So I, I wanted to expect, uh, express my, um, my gratitude to the way the school has been like this uh, place where it's nurtured this, this initiative among many other initiatives in the department over the years.
0: Estelle, congratulations on the ongoing achievement. Uh, 30 years of the journal is, is quite an accomplishment and uh, we're all very grateful for everything you've done to sustain it. Mary and Brent, describe the importance of discovering and experimenting with music at a young age. How does music making especially singing, help develop us socially as citizens?
1: That's a wonderful question, John. And it's really been something that I've, I've, you know, I'm teaching the music in early childhood class this semester. So I've really been thinking about that quite a bit as I've been teaching this. You know, I, I think that oftentimes when we talk about the benefits of music, particularly at a young age, we kind of look at kind of two different categories of benefits, those that relate to musical behaviors and those that relate to things that may fall outside of musical behaviors. You know, many people who talk about music in early childhood and write about music in early childhood, I'm thinking of people like Shinichi Suzuki, Ed Gordon, many others talk about the idea of music being very similar to language and that, you know, young children, when they learn language, they learn it by listening to it first and engaging with people around them who make music. And then eventually they start to kind of try to imitate what they're hearing and they try to, um, they try to kind of start to speak the language and so once they, they kind of are able to speak that language, then after several years of kind of engaging in musical you know, activity, then we move to, to the ideas of, of fluency in music or theoretical understanding or whatever might be appropriate given the types and genres of music that are happening. Um, And certainly I do believe that music with young children needs to be active, it needs to be engaging, it needs to give them opportunities to make music. But beyond just the idea of the musical benefits, I think that when you think about the act of making music as a young child, you think about the way that the child engages with their parents, the way they engage with the other members of their community, and how that's incredibly bonding for the child and for those, those members of their family. It's a way that children are able to communicate. Sometimes they're able to communicate through music and movement before they're able to really communicate ideas and express what they want to express verbally. The first time I was aware of my niece being cognizant of music is someone was singing a song, and she, do, she was doing the movements along with the song, and, and she was very, very young. She's, she's now in college, so I feel incredibly old telling that story, but, but she was very, very young, and I just remember that the act of kind of, that was, she was able to communicate through that music that, that she understood that this was something that she did with her family and with those around her. I think it gives the opportunity to express, to be creative, and also just to develop empathy and develop that, uh, that understanding of other people. Um, not just learning about what happens with, with those who are close to you and around you and how your family or those close to you might engage with and make music, but also how do other people, people who aren't around you, engage with and make music and why is music such a valuable um, ex- experience for those people as well. And I think all of those things, creativity, empathy, being able to communicate, being able to bond and express, being able to engage with other people, they're just critical to society. And so I I tend to look at those more global things as just so important to why music is really a necessity for children's lives.
6: I was just thinking, though, about something much more personal as uh, you get older, students reemerge. And by, for some reason, in the last months, I've had these messages from uh, students, one from a child I taught in 1969, and my, uh, no, it would have been before that, um, but in second grade, I started out teaching second grade, um, oddly enough, I won't explain (laughs) why now, but I had taught, I'd come from a year in Salzburg and I taught Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht to that group of kids. And the brother of that child wrote me and told me that his little brother was in that class and still remembers those words. And so these, you know, the impact of music is memorable to these children and the connections made are are powerful. This week I was visited by two kids I hadn't seen in 40 years and they got in touch with me because they returned to town after all this time and they were in the music program at Elm Heights and that they just reminded me of the role those experiences played in their lives and one of them just sent me a composition she had written uh, as a public service announcement about COVID. So I just can say from this long term perspective the impact of, that music education has on the lives of those students. And that was, it was interesting that, that those all just happened into my uh, life in one month's time. But uh, it's one of the privileges of having taught. Uh, and I know all of you have accumulated similar connections with former students that enrich your lives.
0: And the IU Children's Choir has been enriching the lives of young singers and members of our community since 1980. Mary Getze and Brent Galt continue now with the organization's 40-plus year tradition in Bloomington.
6: As I mentioned before, I had a, gotten an interest in in children's choirs. Basically, I think from seeing a choir perform at, a, at one of my first MENC conferences. And so I started the one at Elm Heights, which was just now it's called Harmony School in Bloomington. And um, I had, of course, never been I, since I was a, a wee child, not been without a, a singing in a choir myself and fell into conducting one. Then Ayu had brought in a boys choir from Wisconsin to perform as part of a piece in the MAC. And I thought, how ridiculous is that? We have all these children in Bloomington, so why shouldn't we have a choir to do that? They didn't even look around the community for children. They just paid a lot of money to bring a busload of kids from out of town and housed them for several days, so that was kind of what uh, started the idea of having a choir. And then Jean Seiner and I put together not only um, I did the choral part, but she added on a musicianship component and applied some of the Kodai principles to that. And then we would uh, we developed in time integrating all of that with the literature, but there were kind of two strands of musicianship and the performance part at at the beginning. And I I remember going to Charles Webb and asking about it, and he said uh, we were not allowed to use it as a school of music choir, but he did authorize it. So it was just a community children's choir at the beginning, but I'm really glad that now It's uh, more more claimed. (laughs) We had to prove ourselves and we did through all of the performances at operas and things. And uh, I think it took on a role in the school and at the same time, enriched a lot of lives within our community. I still hear from a lot of children's choir. I've run into a lot of parents as well uh, of the children who moved through that program in the 15 years that I ran it. And I'm so grateful that uh, Brent has uh, inherited it, (laughs) that it moved through several hands before it arrived at his. And and, um, uh, it's always hugely gratifying that it continues to function. So thanks to Brent for that.
1: First of all, it was, it's my honor to be able to be the steward of this organization that was founded and and that Mary did such a wonderful work with. Uh, When Mary moved on to, to work with IVE. Um, after after that, Sue Sweeney, who is now working in, I believe, the musical theater department, is just a wonderful musician, uh, took over as program director for a couple of years. And then Ruth Boschkoff um, took, took over as program d- director from SUE. And I remember when I was hired by IU in 2001, I hadn't even come here. I was still at my previous job. And I come back from teaching a class and there's a voice message on my phone and it's Ruth Boschkoff saying, we have a children's choir and I think you should be a part of it. And uh, if you've ever worked with Ruth Boschkoff, you know that when she says you should do something, you do something and and I, I I ended up working and being hired by her. she was the program director who hired me and I worked as a director in the program for about two years before I took it over. Ruth continued to direct a choir for us for f- several more years and uh, was just so important to the organization and, and such a mentor to me, who I, I really appreciate more than I can say. Um, the organization continues to do all of the things that it did when Mary founded it. It continues to provide opportunities for children to sing in with operas, to sing with the choral organizations. Uh, recent things that we've done include... Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, which we've done a couple of times since I've been here, Hansel and Gretel, all of the more typical operas that you see. In addition, we do try to also engage with the community. We've done things with the Bloomington Chamber Singers. We've performed at national conferences. Um, Most recently, I would say the biggest transition has been as a result of COVID. Um, Two years ago, We were having a typical year, and in March 2020, just like everything else, we had to close up shop for a couple of months due to the fact that that we were dealing with a pandemic. And and so during the 2020-2021 school year, we had to think about what is the way that we can engage with children and keep this program going in some way so that it's still a part of the community. And so we ended up doing a virtual session, both in the fall and in the spring. It was a smaller session. And that resulted, we had uh, each of the choirs learned a piece of music and then we created some virtual performances where the children videotaped themselves and then we had an audio engineer put those together. Um, anyone who has done a virtual choir can tell you it's a whole lot of work, particularly when you're you're dealing with young children, uh, trying to make sure they know the music, they know exactly how to put the camera on themselves, how to record themselves. But the, the resulting performances, I think, were, were lovely. They were, certainly were not the same as being in person, but it gave us a chance to keep some continuity going last year and then this fall we're back in person and we are um you know trying to rebuild and we're you know things are moving back to the point where hopefully next year it looks like we're going to be involved in an opera performance again in the 2022 2023 school year and we have a couple of big performances here in december um so i think it's moving forward and it's been a real honor to work with this program. Uh, Mary was talking about running into students that she had taught 40 years ago. Uh, The first year that I was here, 21 years ago, one of the first students I saw student teach was Julia Shaw as an undergrad BME student here. As an undergrad, she volunteered with the IU Children's Choir. She was an assistant with one of our younger choirs. And so to see her now have a doctorate from Northwestern, be a nationally known choral clinician uh, for children's choirs and youth choirs, and to have her take over as the director of the Chamber Choir is really a full circle moment for me. And it's it's just wonderful to see the amazing things she's done, things that I don't know if I would ever be able to do. But it's it's just very gratifying to see her back here doing just fantastic work and kind of setting the tone for the next phase of the Children's Choir here in Bloomington.
0: Mary, in reading a little bit about your background beyond the IU Children's Choir, I came across a quote, social justice through music. Can you explain to us what you mean by social justice through music?
6: Yes, by social justice. So we're really talking about leveling the playing field having representation of all of the different ethnic and racial groups in music. And of course, that we could talk about all day and some of the changes that I'm pleased to see underway. What I was really referring to then was teaching music with uh, integrity from cultures outside the Western art tradition within our classrooms and choirs. And um, that was really hard for us to think about because we're so wedded to teaching from scores and teaching in the ways we've traditionally taught. And we were not, as Western art trained musicians, really prepared to teach that music with integrity. So um, my intent was to help students in our classrooms develop respect for other people by performing their music in ways that honor the the culture from which that music comes, and rather than just taking it and sifting it through a uh, Western notational system and traditional ways we had of teaching and all of that led me to start the international vocal ensemble and explore those techniques and practices in ways that I'd never encountered before and I don't think had been done prior to that.
0: Pete, the somewhat significant part of your responsibility at Jacobs is observing student teachers and ushering them to the next level of their their teaching career uh what do you find most rewarding about following an undergraduate music education student and their progress from freshman year through the student teaching process
3: i think the core of that question is really tightly tied into why we do this at all i mean you know one of the most exciting things that i think is possible to witness and experience in teaching is the growth and change that students demonstrate and seeing people transform and mature and become better versions of themselves or more capable or have a deeper understanding of the worlds around them and how they can interact in it and to me that's the most rewarding uh, aspect about working with students throughout their degree career so to speak. So I've I've been fortunate to have experiences teaching the gamut here at IU. Again, from the freshman colloquium course, the very first course, music education students and taking their first year, through methods courses, um, through a capstone course that student teachers take even after they student teach. And then in the graduate program even you know the final doctoral seminar course where doctoral students are putting together their research proposals for their dissertations and. And one thing that's that's consistent um, the entire time uh, in in all of those settings, as you work with students at different phases is just as many of my colleagues already expressed, just the enthusiasm and dedication that the students emulate um, all the way through. It's just really, really fantastic. So what's most rewarding, again, seeing that change, seeing students grow, being able to participate in that enthusiasm and to be inspired by the energy that students bring. And then, of course, um, any relationships that you built with the people that are in your care <laughs> at any given moment, and being able to make colleagues, new colleagues, and 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 in some cases friends, and and seeing uh, how that develops throughout a lifetime, I, I was really moved by the stories from from Mary and Brent uh, about the people who they've worked with and come back uh, to contact them over time and just really pleased to have any kinds of experiences like that myself.
0: Compare Jacob's music education student of today to one of, say, 15 or 20 years ago.
5: Well, I feel like like um, the world has changed really dramatically. I mean, you think even uh, just in the last two years um, that the perspective of our students is is um, quite different. I think the educational system um, that they're entering in as new graduates. I'm speaking specifically about our our undergraduates um, has radically changed, and there there are a lot of questions, um, you know, about whether our, our students what what they're moving into um, as, in as a profession. Um, but I. I I don't know about you guys, but I, I feel like there's still this really deep-seated love for music that um, is so wonderful in our students, and um, our students at Jacobs, in particular, are just just excellent. Um, I mean, I think that's that's the the thing that is so special about this school um, in addition to this powerhouse faculty um, that we are able to build a community with with students at at every level that is just really extraordinary
2: John I've gone back this fall after a couple of years of not teaching to teaching a graduate class a historical um, research and music education course and I agree with Brenda I mean the the students are in a different place um, even than five years ago Uh, But in in many ways, it's a wonderful place. They're thoughtful, they're engaged in the world um, in a way that I'm not sure, you know, we students have been so much in the past. Um, And my graduate class is is pretty exceptional. And I feel like they're thinking about issues in the world and thinking about their place in the world and their role in that in a way that maybe they they didn't think quite so deeply uh, a few years ago. And I want to tell one quick story. You know, a, a number of Years ago, I was in an undergraduate class of people about to go to student teach, and I was talking about them getting involved in advocacy for music education and how important it was to, you know, get to write to their their legislators and and tell them what they need to have happen in some of these ways. I was sort of being pretty passionate about it. And, you know, one of the students in my class said, gosh, you you should run for public office. You're really into this, aren't you? And I just thought, gosh, I wish you all were really into it in that same way. (laughs) And I see the students now being into it in that way. They are um, active they're they're activist in some situations. they're um, expressing their opinions and, and I think that's really healthy.
1: And just to build on that, I think that you know the one thing that the past few years has done is it's made people have to be flexible and learn how to be flexible and learn how to um, adapt to new situations quickly. And I think that the students that we work with now in addition to being exceptional musicians in addition to really being much more aware about what's going on around them and being willing to advocate for things when they feel like things are not going the way they should go. I think they're, they're able to, to adapt and they're able to be a flexible in a way that I'm not sure students previously have been able to. I think about myself at 18 or as an undergrad and I look at the students that we work with and they just seem so much more mature, and so much more able to kind of deal with the way that things are working in the world, much more so than I think I would have been able to at their age. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible. It's, it's, again, humbling is the word I think of to work with them, because they really have had to deal with a lot. And they have gone through it beautifully, I think.
0: You took the words right out of my mouth. Having completed um, my BME and my MME here at Jacob's, and sometimes feeling like I was barely scraping by, I look at what our music education students are capable of today and I think, wow, I would have never made it if I were a music ed student now. Uh, they're, they're really truly incredible. Um, I think of not only their educational prowess but just how good they are at being musicians and how entrepreneurial they are. It's, it's really really staggering to me and, and very impressive. Looking at everyone here and seeing the breadth of expertise and the nuanced areas of music education that you all represent, it makes me think of a word that the musicology faculty shared with me on a recent episode of Reminiscing in Time, powerhouse. Uh, Lissa, you had mentioned that you came at a particularly difficult time, a time of transition um, in the department, but now I'm looking at... Everything that's represented, and and I think the word powerhouse is truly applicable. Would you agree?
2: I absolutely agree. I, this fall, we did a introduction for our doctoral students, and each of the people on the music education faculty now presented a five minute uh, overview of our work. And I really just sat there in awe, thinking, "Gosh, you know, it's just amazing to see the growth and um, the in the expertise that has been assembled here in in what is really an extraordinary music education department." And that happened you know, as I said, in an ebb and flow over the years. There were times when it was just super strong faculty. And then, of course, with resignations and movement and retirements and so forth, um, there is an ebb and flow. But we are, I think, at a particularly strong moment right now.
0: And that's our show. Special thanks to my guests, Brent Galt, Lisa May, Peter Mixa, Estelle Jorgensen, Brenda Brenner, and Mary Getze. For Reminiscing in Time, I'm John Christopher Porter. Thanks for listening, take care of yourselves and each other, wear your masks, and be safe. Our theme music, Danabar, is by Luke Gillespie, and performed by the composer and members of the IU Jazz Studies faculty on the album Moving Mists, From Patois Records. The Reminiscing in Time podcast is produced by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Find us on Spotify, social media, or music.indiana.edu.